welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. I'm AP Andy. And we are having on a very exciting guest today. Uh, her name is Winnie Wong. She was a senior advisor to the Bernie Sanders campaign. More importantly, she is an anarchist and she shares our interest in uh, UFOs and the supernatural. So uh, that's, uh, we're going to play that interview for you in a moment. But first, we have an announcement to make. Wish I had a soundboard. Someone want to pick? <laughs> yeah, we've got a new patron goal. Uh, we hit our goal of 666. How long ago was that? Like a year ago? A, ago. a year and a half ago? Yeah. That was really exciting for us, and we still have grown a lot since then. Uh, but where we really need to be for us to be able to pay all our bills and, you know, keep putting out a podcast every week, plus Twitch shows and work on doing more live shows and stuff like that. We really need to be at around a, a certain number mm. that I calculated. I did a lot of math. <laughs> it turned out to be exactly 1,917. Um, and we're pretty close to that. We're about 150 away. So if you can sign up now... At the $5 level, um, from now until 1917, we will send you a letterpress postcard from our friends at Radix Media, a collectively owned union shop. And if you sign up at the $10 level, you'll get the postcard plus some stickers uh, personally signed. Thank you from us. That's right. And uh, some people have also been asking me about T-shirts. And we do have some T-shirts left. I feel like some people were not sure if they still existed or not, but they do. Mostly uh, smaller sizes, a few larges. So if you want a t-shirt, you can still uh, DM us and we will sell you one. All right. Uh, I guess without further ado, let's take it to the interview with Winnie Wong. All right. Good. Good. I want to know, Jamie, if we have like mutual friends, because I feel like we know each other from like the way back, but I can't Oh yeah, like, figure out like who it is that we know in common. There has to be somebody. Hmm, let me look you up on, are you on Facebook? I am, I am. This can be a dangerous game. Maybe it will emerge yeah. in the course of our speaking yeah. to each other. Wait, I'm, oh, we have 105 mutual friends. We do? Who yeah. are they? Can you take a quick scan and see like who those people might be? Uh, oh this is this is telling me a lot actually you know adam rath my old editor from new york press oh my god i love adam rath he's the best who doesn't who else i guess i see some music people elena stamatis love her uh some new york nightlifey people andrew wk lol some uh, left lefty media people alex press where was the Um, andrew wk endorsement yeah, I don't know. I mean, Andrew and I used to have uh, a lot of mutual friends in common. And he, in like the sort of mid 2000 era of like New York nightlife, kind of wrangled me into support this like nightclub that he opened in downtown New York called Santa's oh, Party House. Yes, so I was like a we, part of that. We crew. know it well. Yeah. And that's, and, and then his wife was a fitness instructor. And he just, you know, he was maybe doing Coke. I don't know. I mean, I can't tell. 
And uh, I just like kind of fell out of touch with him. But I, I always thought he was a great sort of motivational speaker and had great energy. I so. think it's really important uh, in this political moment that you know, we're, we're mutuals of people who stand for something like Andrew WK is probably the most famous Leninist rock and roller out there when he says, let's get the party going. I think he really, uh, I think that really speaks to what we need at this moment, a vanguard party. Yep. Bet you guys you, didn't know that song was about a workers party. <laughs> Wait, would you, would you say that Andrew WK is a more famous Leninist musician than Ian Spinonius? Ooh. I think like really Andrew WK is more sincere about his Leninism. <laughs> oh, <shit>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, let's make sure they both get a copy of this podcast. Let's make sure. Oh, I'll make sure of it. I'll, I'll email them and say, listen, you guys get name checked in this. Ian, Ian was a shit poster before shit posting even existed. He was like the original left yeah. shit poster back in the 90s. It's so sad. I've known Ian for many, many years, many decades, two decades, over two decades. And I always thought that you know he would do more with what he had you know like all of all of the embarrassment of his educational privilege he could well, do he, more he talks the talk and it's it's uh it's really fun uh you know like the the, the zines that he released with the makeup and those liner yeah. notes and all that stuff but then i went to one of his q and a's and he he had shown this uh really cool short film about the commodity fetishism of record collecting and sort of using this Marxist language to talk about punk subculture is really interesting to me. And I asked him, do you use this language and this style as a, you know, as a way to popularize Marxism? Or is this just like your way of looking at things? Or is it just kind of a, an aesthetic shtick? And he completely didn't answer the question. Oh, he's never going to answer that. And like said some interesting sounding things. The one part that I remember of it was that he said rock and roll was actually 3000 years old. Uh, and so it's outside of historical materialism. Oh, my God. And then I went up to him after the Q&A and I said, hey, what did you mean by that? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I was just talking. <laughs> so I, I think, think that, that he's just a shtick, I think, although it's very fun. I don't think he's really into it. Yeah, I mean, his dad is an academic and he grew up, you know, exposed to a lot of um, Marxist thought. And so I don't know how that, you know, translated into his adult life, but you know, he's like still living the dream though. You know, I see him from time to time. He like lives, I don't think he lives in DC anymore. But the last time I saw him, it was at, at the train station, Union Station. He was at Pret-a-Manger. I was at Pret-a-Manger when we embraced. This is pre-COVID, of course. So anyway. Well, I'm seeing a lot of solid leftists <laughs> as well as some cool music people in yeah. our mutuals. So that is good. That's a, it's a, it speaks well, speaks well of our connection. Good. Oh, you got Shannon from Light Asylum. Love her. I love Shannon. She's, She's the best. So cool. Best yeah. favorite show I ever booked when I was still booking shows was definitely a Light when, Asylum um, show in like an illegal DIY club. It was amazing. That yeah, I'm no sure I've been there. I'm sure I've been there. Oh, I mean, I, when I used to go to shows, you know, but I don't anymore yeah. because well, you can't go Nobody anywhere. Nobody does. Yeah. <laughs> what was your scene like? What kind of shows did you go to? I mean, my scene, you know, I mean, I was friends with, I'm still friends with, you know, all the folks from like Gang Gang Dance and, you know, all those folks. Um, so, I mean, oh, yeah. I, yeah, those are my people. Like, those are my immediate people, like my closest friends. Like, there are people who are, you know, not really interested in politics, but, um, you know, support my my tactics, I guess. 
That's good. I feel yeah. like I have been impressed, like, uh, meeting people that I know from, like, the New York nightlife and music scene, like, back in the day, when I suddenly see them, like, popping up in leftist spaces or posting about Bernie or whatever. It's like, yeah, they should. They should be. But, like, music is not, like, just because you're a punk doesn't necessarily mean you have good politics or any politics at all. So, so yeah. it's nice to see. Well, I think I think when Bernie burst on the scene, I think they saw that, that it was possible, actually, to be political or, you know, at least be able to participate in, like, politics, um, you know, in a way that was more, I guess, like, structured. I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, I, I don't think, like, I don't think that anyone from, like, scenes adopted like a, a politician until bernie came along right i mean yeah. there were there were some i guess but not like not like a not like a national like politician not like a national politician like bernie sanders for sure the la punks i just read yesterday were uh in like 1980 they were really into this one uh rockefeller republican who was running for president uh, I don't remember his name. He, he ended up running against Reagan on the Independent Party ticket. And it just kind of blew my mind that, like, the punks back then, they were, like, uh, kind of left Republicans or something. <laughs> they thought, like, Reagan was too... Ex- they really hated Reagan, but they weren't going to, like, vote for a Democrat either. It's probably, like, the, the like the kids in Rhode Island who like Lincoln Chafee. Probably something similar to that, right? <laughs> like, he's is, got is a whole crew of kids that like Lincoln. Really? Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Providence hardcore. <laughs> oh, before before I uh, close this tab, because it's really distracting to be looking at all of our fun mutuals, I see you're friends with John Clegg, friend of the show. You know, I don't know him. I think he might be a person who, like, friended me that I accepted. I don't think I know that person Aww. in real life. I mean, That's the other right. we don't want to we don't want to dox him on the show, anyways. It's fine. But hello, John Clegg. <laughs> we don't want to talk about what he secretly does for the Sanders campaign. <laughs> he's he's in charge of their communization theory. Oh my god! Um, well, so have we started? I guess we have. I think we've started. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Welcome. Let's do a show. Welcome. Thank welcome. You. Welcome. Give the people what they want. They want something raw, uncensored. So, you know. Yeah, gonna this Just is going like to be you. the Eddie Murphy raw of podcast episodes. <laughs> the reality is, we are not going to emerge from COVID nineteen like ever. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, like we are like reopening, and community spread has not been contained, and you know, forty million people are unemployed, and we're going to hit you know numbers that will far exceed you know numbers in the thirties. And we have a completely dysfunctional federal government. Um, and we also have like completely dysfunctional local and state governments. So I don't, I don't really know how we're going to get out of this. Um, and I always think about, I always, I, when I think of socialism, I always think about like Vietnam and I think about like how Vietnam managed to like crush the curve, contain COVID completely by being like openly socialist about the way they actually handled the pandemic as it was sort of first appearing in that region. And I'm always like shocked. I'm shocked. I mean, like zero deaths in Vietnam. None. Well, they also had zero deaths in North Korea, as far as we know. I feel like people don't talk about that enough. I'm just kidding. 
<laughs> yeah. Tanky Jamie came out there for a second. Well, I don't think that I, I think that it's going to be very hard for Joe Biden to defeat Donald Trump. Right. I think first, like, let, like, let's just get that out of the way. I think we are maybe looking at like another four years of Donald Trump. And that obviously does not bode well for democracy. Um, and for, you know, the democratic institutions that the four years of Donald Trump have already destroyed, uh, which means, you know, we have to expect something very different in the next like decade of governance. Um, what that even really means. So, I mean, I, I, I think that we will have to look to local and state government more. And that means replacing like those who are holding those offices now because those people are not very good at their jobs if you only look if you take a look at like what how bill de blasio and, and cuomo have handled this crisis you can see that like it's not just donald trump's fault it's also their fault like they have not been able to um manage like their bureaucracy they just haven't like, they've been very bad at, like their jobs and so I think that, like, you know, we need different systems of governance. I don't well, know what that will look like, but I think that, like, we'll find out, right? We'll fuck around and find out. Yeah. That's, that's where we're at. I mean, I, 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 you know. Yeah. I mean, we've talked a lot on this show about how Bernie kind of seemed to represent sort of the last chance at a managed decline for the United States and the world world and the last chance at some sort of peaceful uh road to something resembling socialism and it seems like that option has been very much foreclosed upon now maybe i mean maybe maybe not i mean at the end of the day like the government does have tanks they do they do actually have tanks and like you know massive like you know artillery and weapons so it's not like you know an armed insurgents is going to you know stop the government that's real too. You see these these guys in like Michigan State House with like, you know, their cosplay guns that they ordered from eBay or whatever, but they're not even like they don't actually work. You know, like the dude was on. You, do you remember the dude who showed up at Subway with like, like a a bomb on his back? Do you remember that? Like that that guy? Oh, like, oh. yeah, he had a bazooka. Yeah, he had a bazooka. But if you like zoomed in, you could see that like. There was like a little label on the bazooka that said it was like uh, in inert, right. meaning that like it was just obviously like cosplay, you know, like you can't order bazookas. Well, I think a lot of those guys are armed, like very heavily yeah, armed, they are armed. But yeah. uh, but I think in general, they're they're sort of working for the state in a sense. Sure. You know, they like the the whole idea of the three percenters and the Patriot movement was that they would mobilize against the government if they started to deploy troops in the United States, and Trump has done that. Uh, he's, he's sent troops to the border. Uh, he was threatening to send the troops to Chicago, and they are not against that. In fact, at the border, they've worked with uh, Border Patrol, you know, like to, to capture people against the state. I mean, maybe if Hillary Clinton was president, they, there would be a civil war right now led by those guys. Who knows? But I, I don't think that they're against the state in any way. And And if they were, I think maybe they would be you know, considered terrorists like everybody wants them to be, or people on Twitter say that they want them to be. They love Daddy Trump, that's for sure. 
I mean, I talked about this with Faye from the Socialist Rifle Association. Um, the idea that the armed left uh, would or could ever use their arms for uh, for anything other than what they use them for now, which is sort of a deterrent and, um, I don't know, just like having a better version of gun culture than the right has. Like the time that it would act, they would actually need to use them. I don't think no, nobody thinks it would be like an armed overthrow of the U.S. government. It would be more so like if the state uh, somehow collapses amid crisis and just retreats from various places, cities, territories, or whatever, as as we have seen them do um, in the wake of disasters like uh, Katrina and Hurricane Maria, uh, and you don't want the only people with guns in that scenario to be like white power militia groups. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess it would, it would, I, I think the supply chain would have to really collapse before we get to that. And I don't think that, you know, a Trump or a Biden administration or a Biden administration would allow that to happen. I mean, if you look at like what Trump is doing now, which is that he's just sort of waiting, he's golfing, he's like back on the golf course, doesn't give a fuck that a hundred thousand people have died. Um, just is out there golfing. He's just sort of waiting for the right moment to attack Joe Biden and, you know, win this election. And I think he's probably going to do a couple things, you know, later in the summer um, that will lead to a Trump victory. Um, and I think one of those things is to actually do those direct cash transfers to America. Yeah. By EO rather than have to go through Congress. I mean, I've said this. I, I mean, I've been very like, vocal about this. I know like how cynical this administration is. And I think they'll do those direct cash transfers. You know, it'll come on a debit card with this face on it. And people will, will say, great, like he gave us 2K a month. You know, from I'll, September. I'll say great. I will say great. I, yeah. I will love to get that credit card in the mail. Yeah, and you'll probably vote by mail for, for, for Bernie. But, you know, most of America uh -huh. will, vote, will vote for or you won't vote. You know, I mean, but yeah. most of most of most of the sort of independent moderate voters will say, "Well, he gave us two K. Yeah. We're going to vote for him." You so can't blame yeah. him. This is yeah. uh, being recorded on Sunday, May twenty fourth, and in the New York Times there was a very serious article, and it's always tough with these uh, legacy gate keeping uh, media uh, organizations, but to you know, they had this they had an article about um, whether Trump is going to cancel the election and people within, you know, the uh, security state and people who are on the peripheries of government starting to plan what happens if Trump just cancels democracy. And all of us, you know, we can think about that and talk about that. But it seems like people on the higher echelons of American society, the types that talk to the New York Times and write for the New York Times, are starting to seriously consider what happens if, you know, Trump refuses to step down. What happens if the election is so fucked up that it barely even counts as an election? What happens if the whole thing is pushed back because of COVID and because Trump has no real serious commitment towards democracy? So things, you know, could heat up pretty quickly. That's only like six months from now. And we don't know what's going to happen between now and then. I mean, I have, I certainly have my thoughts on like what I think might happen. Um, and I'll share them um, with you guys. I, I, I don't think that like Trump 
will cancel the election uh, simply because he can't. The courts will strike that down. Uh, yeah, there's no way the that he'll be able to do that. Yeah, that, that won't work. I mean, however, if Andrew Cuomo had succeeded, if Andrew Cuomo and his sort of hand-picked Board of Elections uh, had succeeded in canceling the New York presidential primary, then that would have pr provided like a roadmap or a blueprint for the Trump administration to do the same. But we were able to sort of sue, multiple groups sued um, the state uh, and the New York primary is back on. So that's, I guess, good. Um, and, you know, the, the governor is like sending out an absentee ballot to anyone who requests one, which means that every New Yorker will be able to vote by mail for Bernie Sanders, which is important that people do do that, actually, because Bernie needs those delegates. And there are a lot of delegates in New York up for grabs. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that like that Trump would have been able to count would, would be able to cancel the election, whether or not like they will. I mean, whether or not like he'll, you know, um, you know, engineer uh, like voter suppression. Uh, I mean, I think we know that they're doing it all across the country already. So yeah, right. I, mean, I think he'll continue to engineer the, those types of uh, suppression tactics across the country. Um, it, it, it seems. Turn out. Yeah, you're probably right. What, what's interesting to me is how much. Um how much leverage the powers that be in this country get from having like a semi-functional democracy. It's like our economy doesn't work. The government doesn't work. More and more people are upset with the way things are, but they're able to point to this uh, shining city on the hill of American democracy as this one bright spot. You know, we're not such and such. We're not Cuba. We're not North Korea because we have a democracy. And it seems like now, like whether or not Trump tries to cancel it or not, or whether the election gets so absolutely degraded by suppression and a lack of legitimacy. It, it seems like even this one, you know, bright spot that that uh, people can point to is starting to fade away in this country. Yeah. Because what well, is the United States? What is the United States if it's not a functioning democracy? It's just like, you know, twenty oligarchs <laughs> in like a, you know. Well, it uh, is a plutocracy, you know, and this yeah. is all really just like the end of liberalism as we know it. So, yeah. which is exciting. Big mood. <laughs> <laughs> it's, which it's is exciting. It, it couldn't go out with a more. Um, yeah proper politician than the completely senescent senile joe biden yeah sleepy joe just taking us yeah. right out i mean yeah. they're both the accelerationist candidate in a way right oh yeah without 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 question i mean joe biden is really like the worst candidate that we could be like <laughs> stuck with he's trying to make himself even worse by bringing klobuchar on the ticket which mm. is just mind-numbing I don't think he makes any decisions for himself, to be honest. I, I, I think I see this as like sort of like elder abuse, you know, like I think that like the management consultants that like are, are you know, overseeing the day to day of the campaign and arranging sort of the nuts and bolts of how to like, you know, write policy for post post COVID America are people who are like Wall Street, like honchos and, you know, um, just like the worst type of like dude, you know, um, in the world. <laughs> and, don't rock. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, and they don't like, they're just like, they see, they see an opportunity to, you know, kind of like uh, exploit this man's like ego because, you know, Joe 
and Joseph Robert Biden has wanted to be president for a long fucking time. Okay, this dude has wanted to be president since he was like forty. And as long so, as he can remember. As long as he can remember, you know. <laughs> and so he's like, I, I'm going to be president. I'm going to keep trying. And he's like, failed a couple times already. And then, you know, obviously was vice president to Barack Obama, and now is back, back in it for like, you know, sort of last hurrah. And you know, the the people sort of, you know, running the show they see an opportunity and, and they're telling him what to do, what to say. And he's like, yeah, that sounds good. And he does it, you know? And it's like the worst sort of avatar. He's like the worst avatar, basically. Yeah. It's, a, it's a bummer. I mean, it is a bummer when you think about it. So it's like, is it elder abuse? Kind of, kind of, he you know. He's a stuffed shirt. I mean, he has been a faithful servant to these interests for his entire craven political career. Totally. He's just somewhat uh less aware of what's going on now so i take it you're not a vote blue no matter who person i've seen a lot of annoying back and forths about this on twitter as well as you know i got into it a little bit with sam on the majority report uh he thinks that it's our responsibility for whatever it may do to tell no. leftists in swing states they need to vote for the lesser two evils. Where where do you come down on that? I mean, I guess I'm just really relieved that I'm like a New York voter. And so that, I, you know, I, I feel like an immense sense of relief, but I will not be, you know, I will not be actively helping to, you know, turn people out in swing states. What I will do is pressure Joe Biden to support Bernie's like policies. That's what I can do. And so I feel like very fortunate that I'm able to just kind of like, you know, live in that zone for the time being. I, I mean, I have no interest in, you know, getting out the vote for, for, for Joe Biden in Florida or in North Carolina or in Texas. Um, but I can, you know, push him to uh, support single payer healthcare and a full cancellation of college debt and and a commitment to you know a better foreign policy, which we can all, which we already see that he's, you know, he's not, <laughs> you know, he's vehemently against BDS. Like we we saw that, right? He's like, I don't care. Oh yeah, it's this. atrocious. It's open. It's open season on Palestinians. You know, like let him die. Yeah, it's yeah. insane. I think but we yeah. all agree on that. It's fucking horrible. Uh, so much of his platform is horrible, and like I. I, I honestly, I can see it for both sides and many opinions, a range of opinions exist on this, even within like my caucus and DSA. Like we were certainly uniformly against the DSA endorsing anyone but Bernie and the Bernie or bust resolution passed overwhelmingly at what was in some moments, a very contentious convention. So I was at least proud of my comrades for that. But um Honestly, I could see it for both sides. Like Sam's making a narrow utilitarian argument in the context of this binary choice, right? If you have a choice between someone who's going to kill 100 people a month and someone who's going to kill 99 people a month, you know, the utilitarian argument is anything that kills fewer people is good, even if it's just one or two, like every life matters. Um, on the other hand, like I was trying to get Sam to see that to the friends and family, and certainly the people themselves, those 99 people who are still getting killed, that might not seem like a meaningful difference to them. Yeah. I mean, there's no question that 
in like there's 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 no question that like between Donald Trump and Joe Biden um that Joe Biden would be a Joe Biden administration would be more favorable to protest like to protest um like the conditions under a Joe Biden administration would be more favorable to to activists and organizers um i think that like another four years of trump means that we might not be able to like have these types of podcasts anymore, you know, like, that, that, that's very, that's problematic. So like, that's something to think about. I do think about that a lot. Like, like, look, like if Joe Biden like becomes president, uh, you know, uh, and you know, we're out of COVID because there, there's a vaccine and, you know, we can, you know, take to the streets again, he will be fine with protest. He'll be fine with that. Uh, Donald Trump, on the other hand, not so much. So I, I do think about that a lot as someone who has like obviously used like mass mobilization and protest as a tactic to um, challenge state power. Um, so. Yeah, I, I also it's think it's, it could be sort of a mask off moment for the Democrats if they are the ruling party in charge of administering austerity during this crisis um, and they don't have the boogeyman of Trump anymore to scare people into falling in line and voting for the person that they say can win. Because that was the top priority of most people who voted for Joe Biden, both anecdotally and in terms of polls. They just want to get Trump out of there. If you ask them what policies of Biden's they like, you know, they'll usually say, we just got to beat Trump. But um, where is that going with this? Yeah. It's, it, it would be, do a better job at showing that the Democrats uh, really do not have your best interests at heart in any way, shape, or form. And we've That's seen right. that already with their, you know, quote-unquote recovery bills where all of the money goes to uh, corporate bailouts and very little of the money goes to uh, working-class people. Yeah. There's, uh, in between... Uh, doing get out the vote and organizing for Joe Biden, ha ha ha, uh, and ignoring things completely. There is a third option which people are banding about, which is Howie Hawkins and the Green Party. Uh, Winnie, where do you come down on the uh, Hawkins candidacy as like a third option, a third party? I think the Green Party has done a pretty bad job of like building power. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, I <laughs> That's guess, the right answer. <laughs> yeah, like, listen, like, don't vote if you don't want to. Like, I, I am, like, I, I, like, I, I have, I've identified as an anarchist since, like, 10th grade, you know? And uh, sometimes I vote, sometimes I don't, right? And so there is this, you know, there, there is this idea that, like, if you're not voting for Joe Biden in New York, that you have to vote for the Green Party. Like, I don't have to vote for the Green Party. If I don't want to like show me like that you can build power and then maybe I'll vote for you. Like, I don't understand like why Jill, Jill Stein didn't run for like governor or mayor. Like we should run, you know, yep. I, I do think that like there should, I think that like the green party should exist. And I think that it is probably time to start thinking about like what a third party could look like or pushing, you know, um, working families party to do better, um, you know, and having these sort of fusion parties. I, I, I support all of that as, as a tactic. But I, I, I don't at all, um, you know, I think Howie's a really nice guy. Um, and I think that, like, you know, if he had, um, if, if, if the Green Party had invested resources into building, like, a mass movement, then 
you know, yeah, sure, vote for them. But like, they're not going to make, they're not even going to get like 1% of the vote. Yeah. Why, like, why bother? I think you and I are rough contemporaries based on uh, what I can gather from your UFO stories and the fact that you're friends with Ian Svenonius from the makeup. <laughs> uh, so we might have this in common. Um, my first presidential election that I ever voted in was the year 2000. And of course, I voted for the only halfway decent candidate, which was Ralph Nader. Um, people can, libs can try to shame me for that, but I don't feel shame in general. Plus no. it was in New York <laughs> state. So like, it's not like I did it in Florida. And even if I did, whatever, that's my vote. But the difference even between 2000 and today is that the entire rationale behind getting behind Nader behind, uh, voting for the green party was to get to that 5% threshold where they would be on the ballot in the next election, which is to say that it was an actual strategy to try to build this yeah. third party. I agree with you that there should be a lot more work done on the local and municipal and state level if people are going to be doing this. Right. But, uh, even today, it's not like Howie Hawkins, there's not a strategy behind it in order to even build, it seems, a lasting third party. It's kind of like a, a protest vote in the, in the purest sense. Yeah, although I do think, you know, that the Green Party could come to the table as like a part of a sort of confederation. Uh, I, th I think, though, I think the, the Green Party could come to um, a coalition table um, and, and, you know, talk about like what it means to do the kind of like down ballot, like organizing necessary to win um, in 2021, 2022, some of these critical um, like local and state like level seats that I think that would be smart, a smart strategy for the Green Party now. But I, I don't I don't I, I'm not like talking to any of those people. So I don't know Like they haven't reached out to me um, at all. Um, but really, like they just have not proven like themselves over the over a decade over two decades that they could do anything yeah so, they certainly let in a lot of idiots along the way yeah i mean yeah I, I mean i think also like when you look at like what ralph did like ralph didn't have like ralph came out of the gate i love ralph nader i'll always like love that guy he's an american hero he's an american hero yeah and like what they did to him like after um is just you know it's just unforgive unforgivable and but um, he didn't have like a mass movement behind him. Um, and that's different. Bernie, Bernie is in a different position right now. Like Bernie might have suspended. He might have, you know, suspended and, 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 you know, decided that he couldn't fight anymore. But he does actually have a base, a really, really, really like powerful base um, that will maybe not like take uh, direction from him but um, are still committed to fighting in this like, so-called political revolution. People really, like, people really like loved what they've been a part of for the past five years, you know, at, at the different levels that they've been a part of it. Like, you know, some people are new to it and they're like, yeah, like, you know, I really like love like being in electoral politics now, right? Like I love, I love like, you know, being like a, I love feeling the burn. Right. And then others have just been at it for like five years because we did this in 16 and they're still at it. And they're so fucking pissed that it's like over now and that we're left with the prospect of like, you know, like, uh, you know, like Joe Biden and, and creepy Joe. Yeah. Creepy Joe, creepy Joe. And like, 
you know, fucking Mussolini, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. I, it's just like, it's terrible. So they're pissed and they're demoralized. And I think it's really like up to, it's up to us to like figure out like when I, I don't, I don't mean like you guys, but like, it's up to those of us who are sort of like doing politics for like work to figure out like how to, you know, keep people like, like sort of in a state of like rage yeah. and action. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I really hope that everyone who got energized by the Bernie campaign doesn't just give up because they saw uh, they saw it fail. I don't think they're going to, but I, I think a lot of people too are starting to get hip to the fact that it can't just be electoral campaigns. No, right? like we have to no. have a mass movement. We need to be building working class institutions because otherwise, you know, it doesn't matter how good your ground game is. If people have been told their whole entire lives by the only institutions that exist, uh, standing between them and the Republicans that like single payer healthcare isn't possible and a democratic socialist can't win. Of course, they're not going to vote for a democratic socialist, even if they may agree with a lot of the ideas that he has. Yeah, that's why, you know, the housing organizers are so important right now. I, I look at like Steve Weaver and like Tara and some of the other housing organizers around the country. And I'm like, these people don't want to run for office. They're just like organizing tenants. This is where this is what this is this is where the real work begins. Like if they're able to continue to build like institutions or build power around like they're organizing, build some institutional capacity, then like, you know, the sky's the limit really, because like renters are not gonna be able to pay their rent, you know, in for the next year. If they're just that. not even 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 if like even if like Donald Trump like sends out debit cards for you know ninety days in August, say from like August to November. Mm. a month which i think he's probably going to do um that's still not enough for like people to like pay their rent rent you know like people are not gonna like service service sector jobs are gone they're not coming back retailers are closing restaurants are closing you know working people are not going to be able to work for like a couple of years until we actually figure out like how to you know get um universal programs to everyone uh, I don't, I don't see how, um, you know, how things are going to get better for, for the working class. And so to your point, Jamie, I think it's, it is very important that like, you know, that like we are now in a moment where, um, you know, different tactics can be applied to challenge the state. Well, let me ask a question along those lines. Yeah. Cause, uh, one, one thing that I was really intrigued about by the Sanders campaign this year was that there was an effort to plug the people who wanted to cannabis and help out the campaign into labor struggles and into movement politics in general. And there was a sense, I think, that even were the campaign to end, that movement would still exist. And the campaign started to lose its momentum around the time the lockdown began. And I think that there was some transfer of the efforts of like phone banking to the efforts of building rent strikes, for example. Do you think the movement is is, uh, is is persisting in these ways? Or do you think it maybe is dormant for a moment? Or I think it's been decentralized. Um, and I mm -hmm. think that that's like not necessarily a bad thing. I think that the senator is like sitting on a, a pretty significant like email list. Um, and that email list will be able to like motivate um you know the 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 donors again like once they're one, once like he actually has a message i don't think he has that message right now because i think he's just really focused on like you know 
being a senator again and making sure that like he's like you know one of like you know half a dozen voices on the hill who are fighting for a better cares package right like if it wasn't for bernie like the pua would have not even been a thing right yeah that 600 a week is is that is that's just sanders it's him and a few others but he was on the floor like fighting for that like yeah but like you know huge it's huge. And, you know, he's he's still pushing for 2000 a month, which, of course, is going to be adopted by, you know, Donald Trump. Mm. Like, that's what's going to happen, because unless the Democrats actually like rally around 2K a month to everyone for a year, which is like what Rashida is proposing um, and what Bernie's also proposing and what Markey and a few others are proposing, there's just no way that like um, we're going to get through this crisis. We're just not going to be able to do it. And I think that, like, like I said, I said this early in the show. Trump is going to do this. He's definitely going to do this. So Democrats have a very, very small window to actually like, you know, give the people what they need. Uh, and I don't, I don't think they'll be able to do it um, because they suck. I mean, yeah. they just fucking suck. Like they, they just suck. Hard to argue with that. I mean, yeah. And so, yeah. So Bernie's like sort of decentralized all of this, this energy and people are, you know, some people are are, 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 are you know, starting new working groups in the DSA or joining the DSA or starting new chapters. Others are, you know, doing work with like, you know, the Sunrise Movement. These are mostly like young, like very young people. So they're like in their early 20s uh, and still in college and, you know, kind of fighting for a Green New Deal. Um, then you have, you know, others who are, you know, doing more, um, you know, community-based like mutual aid work, which is very important. Um, and, and necessary in this moment. Um, and I think he'll wait. I think he'll wait until, until the time is right. And, and I think he'll probably uh, convene folks around uh, a progressive agenda. I don't know that, I don't know that he'll still have the juice to do it because I personally really disagree with the way um, it all ended. If it had been me, I would not have, uh, I would not have ended it that way. Um, but again, like, you know, when you have a large organization such as like a, a presidential campaign, you know, where you have a thousand employees and, um, you know, a number of people at the top who are in charge, um, they make decisions for the rest of us. And uh, we, we may not agree with those decisions, but unfortunately those decisions were made and now we're in a moment where, you know, he definitely, definitely like diluted a lot of his like, sort of political capital with the movement. Yeah, let's so. let's get into that a little bit. Sure. Um, like, w- what's your take on Bernie dropping out when he did and endorsing Biden? And do you think that there's anything the campaign could have done to make a different outcome happen? I mean, it's not a take. I think it's just a fact. Bernie didn't have the math like the math was not working out for him to win right um a few things that should have happened didn't happen uh and i think that like i i don't want to go into the weeds and kind of like you know throw everybody under the bus but i think (laughs) i think that like um i think that like we probably should have approached elizabeth warren's campaign earlier uh, on in the year, meaning like January. Oh, like before um, she should've... stabbed him in the back with bogus accusations of sexism? Well, beyond that, like forget about like that. <laughs> right? like, 
that that's just like that's a headline and that was you know that was like a moment for for you know for uh cnn to to um you know have clicks and um you know advertisers to cash out i mean the the nuance here is if our campaign had actually approached her campaign and made an offer to her after it became clear that she was not going to you know collect more than the 15 delegates that she'd collected after new hampshire and said look you should be the vice president would she have dropped out before super tuesday maybe and if she had dropped out before super tuesday would we have won massachusetts and texas and and oklahoma and washington state certainly we would have so those delegates would have made a huge difference and we would be neck and neck with joe biden now and so that that was a, a tactical error on our part, we should have approached her campaign, um, and and you know, and with an with an entreaty for her to drop out, right? That that didn't happen. Um, so, would she have dropped out if it, it, you know before Super Tuesday? Had she been offered like vice president? Probably yes. Hmm. She didn't have the math, so you have to think about it like that, right? Like you have to think about it like that instead of. You know, there was this moment between the two of them on the debate stage, right? Like, yeah, there was a moment, right? Like, that was a bad choice on her part, I think, to sort of like dredge that up. You oh, know, certainly. a conversation that happened, you know, two, you know, two years ago or a year and a half ago that she took out of context and distorted and then made it into a narrative that like backfired on her, right? Yeah. Like that was bad. Like it was bad political judgment on her part and bad political judgment on the part of her senior senior advisors. Right. And on our part, it was bad political judgment to not like urge the, pro the principal, you know, to, you know, reach out to the other other side and say, listen, like, this is the only way we can do this. Because what happened, you know, in the aftermath of like, um, you know, Iowa was that the moderates consolidated very quickly. And that's also political work. That's political work in that people in Biden's camp reached out to every one of those candidates who dropped out and made promises and said, this is what you get in exchange for dropping out and endorsing us. That's how you do political work. Yeah, it sounds like he made multiple promises to people that he was going to pick them as his VP. Yeah, I, I mean, none of that. Yeah, sure. That's a real 20-dimensional sure chess right there. But it worked. They dropped out and they endorsed him. And, you know, that was... That was that was significant, you know. And then also, you forget that like Michael Bloomberg, you know, spent nine hundred billion, sorry, nine hundred million dollars of his own money to stop Bernie Sanders. That was like his singular objective. Michael Bloomberg doesn't give a shit who's president. His his only interest is to protect the interests of the billionaire class, and that means like to stop Bernie because Bernie would have implemented a wealth tax. That's very important. So that was all happening in January and February as well. You know, I mean, it was it was not ideal. It was not ideal. And I think that, like, I don't know. I mean, I think that, like, we really made some tactical errors. And uh, if it had been me in charge, that would have not that would have not happened. Mm. So, I mean, I guess this feeds into my next question, too, which was like, so you're an anarchist, right? You were involved with Occupy Wall Street. And then you worked for the Bernie Sanders campaign. And the connection between those two things might not be readily apparent to some people because there's certainly 
uh, strains of thought in anarchism uh, that say, you know, the state is an instrument that is fully captured by capital and there can be no moving the ball in a socialist, anarchist or communist direction working within the bounds of the state. Like how does, um, how did the Bernie campaign fit into your overarching politics and your political horizon and how we get there? I mean, Bernie has always been a tactic, you know, he's always been a tactic to me and, and that's, I think that's all I can really say about that. I mean, I, I came out of Occupy and started doing organizing work with Occupy Sandy and I never thought that I would actually enter the sort of electoral sphere um, ever in my life. And it only happened because I saw how badly managed Occupy Sandy was or what a colossal disaster it was like in the aftermath um, and realized that the municipal government was never going to give, was never going to actually, um, you know, rebuild the Rockaways in the way that I thought they would when we first started like trying to rebuild um, the city in the aftermath of Occupy Sand and in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. And so I became like really kind of like uh, demoralized with the whole process of like, like that type of like organizing uh, and, and, and thought that there had to be a different way. And that was when um, a comrade of mine approached me and the, a comrade of mine approached me and said, listen, like we should start this thing to, to you know, stop Hillary Clinton from being the nominee. Like we can't let her like we can't let let this be a coronation. We have to stop her. Like let's figure something out. Like what can we do? And so at the time, like we launched an effort to draft Elizabeth Warren to run for president, um, knowing that like she at least was like a, 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 a politician who was like vocal um, against like Wall Street. Uh, and was talking about like regulating like the bankers and you know regulating Wall Street, and so we tried to get her to like run against uh, Hillary Clinton, and that failed. Um, she was like, I don't want to run, you know. This was before Elizabeth Warren kind of like like this was like you know before Elizabeth Warren actually got a real taste of like power, right? And she was like, I just I want to do my job as a junior senator from Massachusetts, and I I don't want to I don't want to run for president, and that's when we started People for Bernie. Uh, which was, you know, a grassroots effort to push um, people to actually like create a little bit of chaos uh, and to also expand like the parameters of like discourse in in politics. Because I think up until that moment, there had been like almost no mass movement uh, to support uh, an open socialist. There had there just hadn't been one until sort of what we did in in, in sixteen. And so for 16, for all of 16, I was on the outside um, working with like unions like National Nurses United to sort of normalize um, democratic socialism, but also support like this candidate who um, had spent like, you know, 40 years um, trying like as a lonely voice on the inside, uh, trying to fight these like battles. And, and that's, and then, you know, we, we did a pretty good job. We had a great time, like having this sort of outside inside strategy, which led to, you know, 22, um, 22 uh, states, um, you know, going for Bernie. Um, and ultimately, you know, Hillary Clinton won, um, you know, the DNC like rigged it against him the first time and then she lost to Donald Trump. 
And then we tried again in 2020 and we lost again. So, but in the last five years, I think we've like moved the line and we have built a mass movement um, to at least notionally acknowledge that democratic socialism is a thing. Because we can't say that like all five million of Bernie's like individual donors are, de are, are democratic socialists. But, you know, I think that like people are open to the idea of what is democratic socialism. And so it's up to us to sort of help them understand what it is. And I don't think that like Michael Tracy and Angela Nagel are those, those two people. But um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but you know, Bernie's a tactic, he's an avatar. Yeah, I mean, it was worth a shot, right? I had my doubts going into it, but I was well, you're like, an ultra. you know you're an ultra. You've always been an ultra, but like, <laughs> that's all right. Like, look where you are now, you know? You're like, okay, this is cool. Maybe you'll run for office one day. Maybe you'll decide you've had enough oh, of being a podcaster. And you say, you know what? I'm gonna run for office. I'm gonna, you know, run for mayor, you know, or, or city council, you know? I mean, there's tw those 2021, 2022 races are up for grabs. You could run for city council, Jamie, you could win. Oh, geez. Anybody can do it. You love to draft people, huh? I do. I mean, like I'm thinking about like what it means to like elect 5,000 socialist mayors now or 10,000 socialist mayors. You always have to be thinking ahead. Well, I think Jamie, Jamie should at least be nightmare first. Uh, it's I wanna, a good stepping stone. I, I want to ask a question. We, we've maybe got time for, for one or two more. Um, you were also involved in the Women's March. And I, I thought that the Women's March after, you know, like J21, the day after Trump's inauguration, was actually, you know, d despite uh, some of the, the rhetoric there kind of being about how sad it was that Hillary lost or um, saying that Trump is gay with Putin and stuff like that. I thought it was actually really encouraging that that millions and millions of people came to the streets in one of like the largest mobilizations in U.S. history. And it's something that we're going to need again um, as the judiciary moves to overturn Roe versus Wade one way or another. So say like in some strange hypothetical scenario that Joe Biden does not win uh, or, or even that if he does and this Supreme Court uh, takes up some of the truly draconian uh, anti-choice legislation that's passed. Do you think it's possible for something like the Women's March to come back or something like a women's strike to emerge like what we saw in Poland a few years ago? I mean, I think the Women's March is also a decentralized social movement. I think the first couple of years, for the first couple of years, were the years that I was involved with the Women's March. I'm no longer involved at all. Um, I think we were able to do some interesting things and we were able to sort of move the line. But uh, I think that now the Women's March in the United States uh, is, you know, sort of an email, it's just an email list and it's administered by a very small staff and they, you know, collaborate with mostly like liberal institutions and they parrot sort of like liberal talking points and support like liberal issues. So that's like the sort of short answer to like what the Women's March has become. Um, it started off as, you know, a protest, um, uh, mass mobilization day of action. Uh, and then it evolved in its first couple of years to do, you know, some interesting things, including, you know, obviously the um, Kavanaugh protests, which I helped to lead and trained, you know, thousands of women to engage in direct action, to take um, arrests in the Capitol. Uh, that happened, I think, you know, over the course of like three months, two summers ago. But since then, I've, I've just not been involved in the day to day. And it's just it's just not an institution. 
that will likely engage in that type of direct action struggle again. But, um, but maybe if they do, they can you know, certainly give me a call. I'm happy to participate um, in, in any of those types of uh, activations. But I, I, I'm not optimistic that that's what they're, that that's what they're going to do. However, mm-hmm. I do think it's important that, you know, um, that like the DSA's socialist feminist working group think about like what it would mean to do to convene some kind of 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 uh, table who would be capable of actually calling for mass mobilization of working class women to demonstrate in the streets and beyond. I would certainly be happy to like lend a hand in doing direct action training there because I do actually have a background in direct action training, you know, like way back when before oh, I yeah. became senior senior advisor on the. Sanders, wow. Sanders campaign, you know. So yeah, I'm like, I'm stoked to do that. Like, let's 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 take an arrest, you know. Let's take ten arrests. I could certainly connect you if you need it or want it with the people working on the mass strike for reproductive justice, which is uh, a project of the Socialist Feminist Working Group that I find very exciting. How many people are are like joining those like those meetings like on the regular? You know what? I haven't been a part of it, so I couldn't tell you. But I know a lot of people who could. And uh, I'm excited about the possibilities there. And also just the possibilities for socialist feminism opened up by having two alleged rapists running for president, right? Because I think a lot of liberals are confused about how that happens. And I think it's the socialist feminist turn to step in and explain it a little bit with reference to how all these things are connected to capitalist oppression and whatnot. I think that's right. I mean, it is, it is unfortunate that the women's March leadership had to uh, involve, you know, the ouster of like people like Linda and Tamika because they're actually very radical. Um, And, you know, now they're no longer involved and, you know, you have just a different board structure and like different, you know, a a skeletal staff, um, you know, administering this like email list. Um, they didn't actually do like political education, which is what they should have done. Um, but again, it's very, very difficult to like build institution, you know, um, it's very, very difficult to do that. Um, and I think that like one of the great things that came out of the Bernie Sanders campaign is that like it did actually manage to, you know, um, engage in like large scale political education for the time that it was a, a robust um, project. Yeah, that's so important, especially at a time when class consciousness is like really not the greatest in this country. Like the political and the messaging aspect of the campaign, I think, was to a large degree a success on some level and building on the messaging of Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter and other grassroots movements that came before it. Yeah, he managed to, you know, like the social movements managed to coalesce around the candidate, right? And the candidate himself understood that he uh, is just like, that his role is just as as a messenger. So that was good. I mean, he didn't always like message like the way we wanted him to, but he did a pretty good job. He did a pretty good job of like, you know, but of course, like his, his politics um, you know, align with like the demands of social movements, largely align with the, the demands of social movements. But of course, like the, the, like the liberals were never going to like give Bernie Sanders a pass. 
Like, can you imagine if like Bernie had like said what like Joe Biden said on Charlemagne to Charlemagne the God? Oh God, forget about it. <laughs> can you imagine? Like, <laughs> you like, don't vote for me. You ain't black. Can you, I mean, <laughs> like, it would be it would it would have been like wall to wall coverage in the Sunday shows today. Oh yeah. Like it would have, you know, I mean, Joy Reid would have called in the body language experts. It would have just been like <laughs> nonstop, you know, like nonstop. And, you know, now you have like, you know, black intellectuals like making excuses for Joe Biden. And of course, you know, Simone Sanders saying that it was unjust. I mean, it's wild. Yeah, there's basically nothing that Joe Biden could do that would lose the support of the Democratic Party establishment at this point. I mean, he could have been wearing blackface himself in that video. And it would have been fun. Yeah. 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 But he's like, uh, he's like the last of like, he's like, he represents like really like the last of it, you know? Like we have to, this is why, like, this is actually why like the radical feminists have to deal with those incels, you know? Like that's, that's, that's really what's going on here. It has to be dealt with. This is like something that like is why like I, I'm not going to like leave the struggle. Like if Joe Biden is like, like the sort of last of like the great, like uh, patriarchs of liberalism, then we now have a real problem because when he dies off, like when they die off, when all these, you know, sort of like old white bros like die off, we're going to, we're going to be stuck with like just a, a totally dangerous scenario where the electorate is like young people like split in half like multiracial, like working class, like young people versus like QAnon folks. Yeah. And that's like really fucking terrifying to me. Because if you, if you were paying attention to like how like, you know, like left right wing parties in like Europe actually like rose to ascension, um, it was really a lot of these like QAnon incel types who were, you know, taking advantage of like YouTube and winning seats. Yeah, it's not good. I worry that this crisis and the ruptures opened up by it are going to be more easily exploited by the right too, because they just have more power right now to begin with. And it, it is in some sense, a mass movement, which is scary. I mean, I think we've normalized like anarchism, right? Like, I mean, when you have like, I don't know, Nydia Valeska saying I'm doing mutual aid in my district, that's normalizing anarchism. Do they know that that's what it is? Do they know or no? I mean, I wonder. I mean, I think AOC was the first person to sort of make it a reality. She was like, we're going to do illustrations with mutual aid. Remember that? Like a, like a month and a half ago or two months ago when she had like a, a, like a phone call with her, like a distributed phone call with her constituents and like oh, yeah. did a whole sort of like mutual aid series. Yeah. And then she showed up to do mutual aid with the NYPD, which is, you know, not the best thing, but uh, critical support for AOC. Sure. Regardless, I like sure. a lot of what she's been doing. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, it's very hard. It's very hard. It's very difficult to, like, fight the right when the center actually holds, like, the keys to all of our, like, institutions, you know, like our media institutions are, like, led by like wealthy liberals, ultra wealthy liberals. There's like nothing you can do about it. Like unless Joy Reid says, okay, like let's have the antifada on the show. <laughs> like, you know, at the block, like you're not gonna be able to like get your message across to, to um, you know, to everybody. Yeah. Well, you okay. Know? 
before we go, that is all very true. Um, and if Joanne Reed wants to invite us on her show, uh, we will gladly accept just saying, pass the message uh, along. I, I think that's all Jamie. I don't think me and Andy are. No, I have a lot to say about Joe Biden's body language. <laughs> me too. Me too. Hashtag me too. Yeah. But I, but I wanted to ask before we go uh, what the deal is with that uh, pro, that Biden super PAC started by some former Jeff the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, is it safe to say you are not a part of that? What's the deal? No. Jeff Weaver is uh, Bernie's like, like longtime like advisor. He's been with Bernie for a long time, and he started a super PAC. Um, and that super PAC uh, is meant to convince you know Bernie's base to vote for Joe Biden in November. Uh, you know, without actually kind of pushing Joe Biden to move left. And I think that it's just beyond the pale. And so I had to call it out. And I was like pretty vocal about about my disgust for for that effort. Um, and I think that like that maybe like led to like Bernie asking Jeff to change the name because the initial like the, the super PAC launched with with uh, a name that uh, they registered with the FEC with the name that like is more aligned with like Bernie Sanders himself. But the, the candidate has since disavowed um, the super PAC. So they had to change the name to like new America's promise or America's promise. It went from like a future to believe in to America's promise. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like you can't like, you can't like start a super PAC in the name of Bernie Sanders and expect that like his base who have contributed like blood and sweat and tears and literally like, like their paycheck, you know, a portion of their weekly paycheck you know, to this campaign is going to like move and all of a sudden like support like Joe Biden, who is saying, I will never support Medicare for all. Like what in the actual fuck was he thinking? So of course I had to like do something about it. And I kind of waged, you know, um, an antifatha, so to speak. Uh, and uh, he, you know, he's, I'm, it's, they, they, it's still, it's still a super PAC. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that what they're going to do is like run ads or make ads um, and it'll be funded by, you know, the donor class from the Democratic Party who are, who think that like, you know, this formation is going to be able to move the Sanders block. But I, I just, uh, you know, there was a, an article in Newsweek a couple of days ago that said only 3% of Bernie's like 2.2 million voters have donated to Joe Biden so far and that they're alarmed by these like figures. They should be. Like why? Why would they think that like Bernie Bernie's like donors are going to like give to Joe Biden? I don't know. Joe Biden emailed me the other day. He seemed to think that I wanted to talk on the phone with him. The subject line was like, "Can I call you, Jamie?" I'm like, "Well, at least he asked permission first. How did but he like, get your number? How did he how get did, your number? How did he get my email? Yeah. I have no idea. I assume that the Bernie campaign is not turning over their email list." And that I must have like signed a form at some point in time without thinking about it. No, I bet I bet what happened. I bet what happened. Here's like the process answer to to your confusion. Here, I bet what happened is that that pack that Jeff started sold email names, like some of the some of the email list that they had already had from sixteen or from I'm not sure. Like they might have acquired. Because the way that you the way that you are able to like legally acquire like email 
uh, addresses is by purchasing them. So it's a, it's a possibility, and I'm not saying that this did happen. What I'm what I what I think happened is for someone like you to have like ended up on Joe Biden's list means that some that that like like someone from like Bernie Land, uh, perhaps Jeff, perhaps someone else, but likely Jeff because he's the only person to have access to that email list, would have sold your email address to Joe Biden, who then reached out to you. He, no, I don't think he wants to talk to you, Jamie. I don't think he wants to talk to, like that dude doesn't, like he want, He can't even believe that like the Bernie, like he, like I'm sure that he's like getting his like readouts from his staff and his staff are, you know, saying Vice President Biden, like the Bernie people are not falling in line, you know? And I'm sure he's like, doesn't understand like why, because, you know, like he talks to Bernie and Bernie's like, you're a great guy, Joe. <laughs> and he is, just doesn't understand why. And then the advisors, you know, are like, why can't we like stop the burning people from like, you know, being disruptive or how can we, how can we neutralize them? I'm sure they're always like thinking of ways to like neutralize us, but um, it's just not going to work. You know, like the only way that Bernie's base is going to move in the direction of Biden this November is if Biden like gives a full throated endorsement of Medicare for all. If he doesn't say that, forget about it. Yeah, he's not going to fucking do that. He's not going to fucking do that. Yeah, I mean, like they, the the thing is, like, who the fuck do they think is going to vote for them? Like, he's like actually like alienating everybody, like black people, saying he doesn't need like Latinx votes, like doesn't give a shit about Bernie's base. Like, who who does he think is going to like deliver these victories? Uh, all those suburban moderates, you know. But are that's, those suburban that's moderates their strategy? Like, right, that's fine. But like a lot of those suburban moderates and independent voters are like looking forward to receiving two thousand dollars in cash payment. Uh, from Donald Trump, and they're not going to fucking vote for Joe Biden. If Joe Biden is promising them absolutely nothing but empty platitudes on Twitter, it's really weird. Like, I guess these people all have brain worms. Brain worms. It's just, that's what it is. Brain worms. Joe Biden is brain worms, and Michael Tracy is brain worms. They all have brain worms. It's just <laughs> like, it's, uh, it's like a second pandemic. The pandemic of like liberal brain worms? Yeah. I mean, it's a pandemic this within the pandemic. Yeah. Oh my God. You should really get a vaccine for that. The brainworms I heard were actually, uh, they came from a lab. <laughs> Chinese lab? Yeah, from my lab, from my personal lab at home. Chinese lab. That's right. Has this been enjoyable for you guys? I mean, I tried my oh, best yes. to like, not be yeah. incendiary, but I think I might have been very incendiary. We, uh, we are a safe space for being incendiary. We I encourage everyone to be there fullest most incendiary most radical self so on yeah. that level you've succeeded good thank you thank you thank you I'll, maybe I'll, I'll send like a link to Bernie himself I'll email him and be like hey you should take a listen to this by oh, the way yeah. Yeah. you probably shouldn't have hired me but you did <laughs> sorry buddy oh, I say the same thing to Sam Cedar all the time <laughs>